Next week, I encourage you to be here. Um, I am putting in a little extra work on the sermon. It's not that I don't put any work on the sermons currently, uh, but I I am going to put in a little extra work, and you'll see what I mean next week. It is what I what I'm trying to do is kind of difficult, but you'll you'll see how it turns out. It might not work, but whatever. We'll we'll see. Uh, one thing I do want to encourage you to do um, when we're talking about the Gospel of John, and we've been reading, we've been preaching over chapters 13 through 17. I encourage you to read these chapters. Right, read chapter 13 through 17 and read it again. Right. Read it, read it, read it. Quite frankly, I'd rather somebody spend a long time just on a a small block of text, whether it be a few chapters or whatever, I'd rather you spend a long time on that small block of text than just going through a Bible reading plan, just skimming over the text. Uh, The the text is rich and deserves to be savored. It's, It's not something you should gargle and spit out like some mouthwash or something, right? The text is rich and deserves to be savored. There's a whole lot of depth in the Gospel of John. And as we've seen, we've seen that Jesus, he's, he's clear about some things, but then other times he uses analogy, he uses some imagery, and it's a little more difficult to decipher. He gets deep in what he's trying to communicate to them. As he says in John chapter 16, John 16, the first half of verse 25, he says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. Right? Notice he says that I have said, generally, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. He did not say, I have said all things to you in figures of speech. He did not say that. Right? One example of Jesus being blunt and clear is chapter 16, verse 2, as we recently read. He says, They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. There's no imagery there. That's true. Uh, In fact, if I remember correctly, according to tradition, all of the 11, well, all the 11 except one, died a gruesome death. John may have been the only one who lived and died in his old age. Age, But Jesus, he was blunt, he was clear with them there. And then an example of him using figure of speech is in chapter 15, verse 1, when he says, I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Now, obviously, Jesus does not literally mean that he's a vine. He does not literally mean that his father is going to come into his, the orchard and snip his branches. That's not what Jesus literally meant. It's just simply imagery to communicate a point, right? So not everything in chapters 13 through 17 is in a figure of speech. Some of it is. And just to forewarn you as we continue through this text, the main point of the sermon is not going to come to like the last five minutes. Um, we're going we're gonna to walk through the text. We're going to explain some things. So if you want to tune out until the last five minutes, which I know that some of y'all probably do that anyway, uh, you can do that. So Second half of verse 25, Jesus says, The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Our first question should be, what hour? Now, one thing is for sure, right then and there is not the hour. Right? He says the hour is coming, meaning it's not now. It's coming when I'll tell you plainly about the Father. So when is this hour? Well, I think we can draw from other passages to understand this. Luke chapter 24, verse 27. 
Luke 24, verse 27, Jesus, or this says, and it's when Jesus, he, he encounters the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and it says, in the beginning, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So he's clear. He takes the opportunity to explain everything from Moses all the way to now. And then Acts chapter 1, verse 3, he says, I pre- he presented himself alive to them, that is, the disciples, after this suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. He takes that time. If you didn't know, Jesus, after he was raised, he was on the earth for 40 days explaining to them the things concerning the kingdom of God. So it's pretty clear. After his resurrection, I think that's the hour when Jesus, he explains to them directly and clearly the things concerning the Father. And he continues, chapter 16, verse 26, Jesus says, In that day, all right, so in that day, the day of his resurrection, in that day you will ask in my name. I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Again, in that day, we're thinking in the day of his resurrection when he's being clear with them. Now you may think, well, wait a minute. I thought last week that Jesus said they would ask nothing of him. You got to notice the very subtle but distinct difference in wording there, right? So John chapter 16, verses 23 and 24, as we read last week, that says, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Compared to verse 26 again, he says, in that day, you will ask in my name, Do you notice the difference? There's the difference between saying, in that day you will ask nothing of me, compared to, in that day you will ask in my name. Right? There's a difference between asking of Jesus, which is to ask something directly of him, and there's a difference between that and then asking in his name. To ask in Jesus' name is to directly ask God the Father of something in the name of Jesus. Jesus, and pay very close attention to the second half of verse 26 when he says, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. So what is Jesus trying to tell them? Right, so essentially what we've read here is that he's saying, you know, after that day, in that day, the day of my resurrection, you will have a direct line to the Father. Jesus has said, hey, I'm not going to have to ask on your behalf of the Father. In fact, you are going to ask of the Father in my name. Right? They have this direct line when Jesus is raised. Right? So one of the main things that we see, one of the main things that Jesus establishes is that he establishes a relationship with us and the Father that we did not previously have. He gives us this direct line to the Father that was lost. Right? And this is why we have passages, and this is why we, we pray the way we do. Right? We address the Father directly. Uh, when you see Jesus pray in Matthew chapter 6, he gives them the example of a prayer, how they should pray, when he says, uh, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, for the King James out there, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And notice the very first part of that prayer. Our Father in heaven. He tells them, this is how you should pray. Directly address the Father. 
Right? And so it seems that Jesus is saying, hey, well, after I'm raised, you're going to have this direct connection to the Father. I'm not going to have to ask on your behalf. In fact, you are going to be able to ask of the Father directly in my name. Other than the fact that Jesus himself restores that relationship, why else is this so? Verse 27, we read, it says, for or because or since, the other ways that this word could be translated, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. What Jesus is trying to communicate here is an intimate, close relationship. The word translated as love here is phileo, which is an affectionate, compassionate kind of love, a love that cherishes. So why can we ask the Father directly in his name? Because the Father loves us. He loves us. He has affection for us. He has this kind of compassion. He has this intimate relationship with us. If you notice, as I pointed out before, there's a special kind of love that is shared between God and his people. If you didn't know this, and sometimes we brush over this, sometimes we, you know, it is true that God loves the world, but in Scripture we see that there is a special kind of love that is only shared between God and his people. Again, read verse 27 again slowly. It says, For the Father himself loves you, phileo, he cherishes you, he has affection for you, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved, again, phileo there, you have loved, you have cherished me, you have affection for me, and have believed that I came from God. Now, this text should not be taken to mean, oh, so uh, does God only love those who love him? No, that's not at all what the text is trying to communicate. The most memorized verse in John is what? For God so loved the world, there that's agape, for God so agape the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So yes, God loves the world. He has that unconditional love for the world, but it's not the same as the love that he has with his people. There is a love that is only shared between God and his people. There is a love that is only shared between Christ and and his bride. All right, so just think about this to give you an example. It's an obvious example. You and your spouse, I mentioned this before, you love your spouse. Right? You love your spouse, but there's a love that you have for your spouse that you don't have, or at least you shouldn't have, for anybody else. There's a special love that exists between you and your spouse that you don't share with anybody else. In the same manner, there is a special love that is shared between God and his people. Right, there's a reason why the church is described as the bride of Christ. Jesus loves his bride in a way that he doesn't just love anybody in the world. A special kind of love. It's not to say that he doesn't love the world. He does. But there's a special love that's only shared between God and his people. And so Jesus, he restores this relationship with God the Father. We have this direct connection with God the Father because he phileo Phileos us. That's probably not how you say that in Greek, but anyway, he loves us. Uh, Jesus continues, verse 28. He said, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and I am going to the Father. So to summarize what Jesus has said thus far, 
Jesus, he's restoring this direct line to the Father. We can ask of the Father in the name of Jesus. But Jesus says, hey, now I'm going to go. I'm going to go back to my Father. Right? So Jesus is going on to better, better things, but he's left us with a relationship that we did not previously had with the Father. And notice how these bonehead disciples respond in the following verses, verses 29 and 30. If you don't get this, it's pretty funny. Uh, Verses 29 and 30, his disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Now at first, you're like, "There, there is some good stuff there. Right? They affirm their belief, they affirm their faith in God, but I can't help but ask how well were they listening? Because right? what does Jesus say in the second half of verse 25? He says, The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. The hour is coming, meaning it's not here. <laughs> That's in the future. And what do they say in verse 29? They say, Ah, Now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. That wasn't the hour. Jesus was not saying, hey, now I'm going to speak directly to you about the Father. That is to come. Right? Have you ever explained something to someone just for the... Right over your head? Have you ever been the person? Have you ever been the person where you had something explained and it just... Right over your head? I know there's a lot of wives out here that are shaking their head nodding. Like, yeah, that's, that's my husband. Um, and quite frankly, that's really all of us men, right? We, we kind of don't listen when we should. Our ears sort of have this automatic turn-off valve that we have no control over. Um, and you know, you know the two words we're supposed to say to our wives? You, you, I've heard this so many times, you know, this advice that had been given, Aaron, just say yes, dear, and you'll be good. That doesn't really work if you haven't been listening, as I found out. All right? It doesn't work. And so... Maybe, maybe you've that person who it just went right over your head. And I imagine, I imagine if we were in the disciples' shoes, we would be confused too. But Jesus responds to them. Verse 31, Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Do you now believe? I don't think he asked this question to guilt trip them. I don't think he asked this to uh, make them feel bad. I don't think he says this to condemn them. I think he's concerned. I think here Jesus is genuinely concerned about how much do they believe. Because evidently, their ears were not picking up all of what Jesus was putting down. So how can they say they believe if they don't really understand Jesus? And so Jesus continues, verse 32. Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. They will be scattered. This seems to allude to, this seems to reflect Zechariah 13 verse 7. Zechariah 13 verse 7, it says, Awake, O sword, against what? Against who? My shepherd. Right? Who's described as a shepherd in the Gospel of John? Jesus. So, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. That's an interesting way that words that. Usually when you hear about the sword in the Old Testament, it doesn't necessarily mean a literal sword. It just means affliction or even death. Death is going to come. All right, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Who would be standing next to the Lord of hosts other than the Son of God? Right? Awake, O sword, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd. And the sheep will be scattered. 
I will turn my hand against the little ones. So some 200, 300, 400, I don't know exactly how many years before, but at least a couple hundred years in advance before Jesus was even on the earth, this was prophesied. You know, thinking about what Jesus says here to them in verse 32, again, he does not say this to condemn them. Or don't read this text thinking Jesus is trying to guilt trip them. He's trying to make them feel like, oh, we've done so much wrong, we're irredeemable. That's not at all why Jesus says what he says. Or think about this comparison to shepherd and sheep. Jesus is their shepherd. They're the sheep. All right, so answer me this. When a shepherd dies, what would be the natural response of the sheep? To flee. To scatter. And I think Jesus knows this. Well, I don't just think that. He does know that. Jesus knows that when he is on the cross, when he dies, they are going to scatter. And he loves them anyway. That's just the natural response of the sheep. Really, only one of the eleven was there when Jesus was on the cross, as we know. John, the writer of this gospel. But only one of the eleven was there. And no doubt that most of us, and I would put myself in that group, no doubt we would be the ones to scatter. I mean, if you think about Peter, (laughs) the most zealous of all the disciples was one of those that scattered. And so Jesus, he's here before them. He's, again, remember, keep the setting in mind. He's a round table. This is a very intimate setting. They're having supper. And so he's looking at them. He's teaching them. He's talking about so many different things about his love. So I don't think these words are said with an intent to guilt. He says these words with love. And hear what he says in the first half of verse 33. Verse 33, he says, he tells us why he says these things. He says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Now we're getting to the primary point of the sermon. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. So it's clear. He has not been sitting around table with them talking to them to guilt them. He has not been sitting there talking to them to make them afraid. No, he's been talking to them. He's been telling them these things that they may have peace. And if you notice, pay very close attention to the wording here. He says, I have said these things to you that in me, that in me you may have peace in him, in him, In him, only in him, they have peace, they have tranquility, they have calmness. I would describe this as complete assurance and security. In the middle of this verse, Jesus says, In the world, in the world you will have tribulation. What the world offers is tribulation, affliction, trouble. I'm sure you've heard of a lot of people how they say, oh, you know, I want world peace. World peace this, world peace that. If we could just, if all the nations should just get together and agree to stop all these wars, all this nonsense. And here's why it's nonsense. Because they're looking to the world for a solution to peace. In the world, you have distress, you have affliction, you have tribulation, you have... Trouble. 
The world does not offer a solution it cannot. Peace only comes from God. And why is this so? Ultimately, why is this so? The last part of this verse, Jesus says, But take heart, take heart, I have overcome the world. This echoes what we read. If you notice in John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives. Why not as the world gives? Because the world doesn't get peace. Uh, and I'm going to call back to that, the setting, the, the historical setting with Rome and their Pax Romana. It wasn't really peace because they would just squash anybody who would oppose them. That's not really peace. Wielding a sword to make sure people get in line, that's not peace. All right? So not as the world gives, which is a fake kind of peace, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Right? We have peace because Jesus overcame the world. Right? We don't look to the world for peace. We look to the one who overcame the world for peace. And what does it mean anyway? What does it mean that Jesus overcame the world? Well, think about the context. Uh, Jesus has been talking about that day, the hour that's coming, the day of his resurrection. And in his resurrection, I would describe that as conquering. And what did he conquer in his resurrection? Sin and death. Jesus conquered sin and death. In other words, in other words, he conquered the world. Because that's what the world offers. The world offers sin, death. The world offers tribulation. The world offers trouble. And so to close, I have a few passages I want to read here. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 50 through 57. Paul says, I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Verse 33, we continue. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on the immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In this last passage, Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, I've read verse 19 recently. It says, For in him, that is Jesus, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Right? Jesus overcame through the cross. He overcame through his death and he overcame through his resurrection. So trust him. The world does not offer peace the world does not offer a connection to the Father, a relationship to the Father. Jesus offers peace. Jesus offers a connection to the Father. He has overcome. So come as we stand and sing.